Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Moore. Today we dive into one of my favorite topics in history, mobs and gangs of the early 20th century America. My guests are a father-daughter author duo, David Myers and Elise Myers Walker. Together, they've written Ohio's Black Hand Syndicate, The Birth of Organized Crime in America. In the book, they describe a time before Capone and the Purple Gang when organized crime was first taking root in the United States, as well as one of the first major efforts by law enforcement to combat their activities. David is a graduate of Miami University and The Ohio State University. His lifelong interest in history has led him to turn out a number of nonfiction books on a variety of topics, especially those frequently neglected by others. He often collaborates with his daughter, Elise. He has authored several novels and a handful of works for the stage. He has even written two full-length musicals. Elise Myers Walker earned degrees from Hofstra University and Ohio University. She is a former board member of the Columbus Historical Society and the Ted Lewis Museum in Circleville, Ohio. With a particular interest in true crime, she often co-authors books with her father. I hope you enjoy today's episode. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. David and Elise, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, before we get started, can you take a minute to tell us a little bit about yourselves, your work, and how you got interested in this topic of true crime? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, You know, this is, and I always forget the number, I I think this is our seventh book that we've written together um, that are all uh, historical books, local history. Um, and actually, a couple of them in the past have been true crime. We've written a great deal about prisons in Ohio. Um, and the reason behind that is that my father and co-author here is um, retired after spending 30 years working in corrections. Um, but particularly with the Black Hand, we had originally intended to include a chapter on the Society of the Banana in a previous book that we did and started to realize that it was just far more than one chapter and really deserved a book of its own. So here's that book. What she said. Uh, Yeah, I've got 30 years in corrections. And when you spend all that time in prisons, uh, you are cognizant of the history. And uh, I, since I worked in the psychology department, I looked through a lot of old files and, going back into this era. Uh, I worked at the Ohio Penitentiary before it closed, and so I had access to that, and it was just, uh, it was extremely interesting. So with your background, you're really able to bring not just the historian's perspective, but also a real-world, modern law enforcement perspective to a historical topic. Well, he wasn't law enforcement, but he was psychology, <laughs> so actually you you hit the nail really on the head right there. He was able to bring in a a modern perspective on the thinking and the doing, as much as you're able to looking at historical documents. Yeah, I just uh, you know, enjoyed just the pure history of it as you're you know, walking through those institutions. I also worked at the Ohio State Reformatory. You know, I had antique furniture in my office. You know? And uh, so you're just around that every day and uh, it, uh, you kind of absorb some of the atmosphere, I guess. And, uh, you know, as I'm working at the Ohio Penitentiary, I'm aware of things like the Purple Gang members that came through there and that kind of thing, the Dillinger Gang members. 
you know, even going back to, you know, John Hunt Morgan in the Civil War, he was locked up there. So you're you're aware of this and you, you keep running into uh, kind of relics from that era. Oh, wow. So you had the opportunity to be surrounded by the physical history and the, the artifacts from these cases that you studied. Yeah, it was, you know, and that's why I regretted that they completely demolished the Ohio Penitentiary because I, I thought they should have saved at least some of it. Uh, I'm glad that they saved the main portion of the Ohio State Reformatory, you know, because uh, people get an idea, get the ability or the, the opportunity to tour the that facility and get some feel for what corrections was like, you know, going back 100, 150 years. Well, and it's so funny that he mentions that because I, I've been recently watching Castle Rock, the, the Stephen King uh, Hulu, Hulu show. Um, and a big portions of it take place in Shawshank Penitentiary, while, of course, Mansfield Reformatory, the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield, was they filmed portions of the Shawshank Redemption film there. And it's so funny because I'm looking at the set they're using now, which is not Mansfield, and going, they they made that look like Mansfield. They made those paintings. <laughs> they built those exteriors. They're they're using that style, that look, and it's nice that they still have sort of a living palette to work with because portions of it were saved. Yeah, it doesn't matter what Stephen King actually envisioned. Now it's set in everybody's mind that it's the Ohio State Reformatory. It's Shawshank, yeah. All right, well, let's dive into your book, Ohio's Black Hand Syndicate. And before we get too far into it, let's discuss the term black hand. I, I think a lot of people know what organized crime is. They've seen enough movies to, to, to put that together. But when you say the term black hand, what do you mean by that? Well, I think it's worth uh, noting that the difference between the black hand and some of the other actual organizations that we refer to black hand isn't a group it isn't a one specific group it's a technique and it's a technique of writing a threatening letter basically it was really the the press and the media at the time that attempted to make it seem like there was the black hand the organization responsible for all of this but um even a really like cursory view of some of the letters some of the Articles about the letters that have been written make it very obvious that there was never one black hand organization at work, that it was a number of, um, I don't know, probably more individuals than even smaller organizations just just sending out these letters. Yeah, and, and the, the, the whole point of our book is that we identified an early organization, the first one that was prosecuted by the federal government. But the term itself, black hand, it, it came from the fact that these letters, some of them were actually signed with a black handprint or, or some, a, a drawing of a black handprint. Uh, so that was a, a, a kind of a, an ominous sign. And these letters, they went out with all kinds of doodles on them, you know, of knives, you know, piercing hearts and blood and skulls and that kind of thing, because the whole idea was to intimidate people. And a lot of the people, you know, that they were trying to intimidate weren't literate. So they just got this scary-looking letter that they couldn't read, and they had to take it to somebody else to read it to them. And uh, but that was the whole idea: is they, they there was this mystique that developed around the black hand, and because of the newspapers and even some police forces were trying to link all these crimes, then you create this you know the, this big you know uh, kind of a, a boogie monster 
of the black hand in people's mind. And that's where a lot of the, the power of it came from. So there really wasn't a strong connection between these letters. There wasn't a definitive the black hand. They, they weren't connected, but who knew that? <laughs> well, and wouldn't that have been nice if they were? Because then the police only had to take down a handful of people and the newspaper writers could make incredible stories about the taking down of this scary organization that it's done and clean and over with. That would have put a nice little bow on everything if it could have just been one organization and not, yeah. like I said, all these handfuls of individuals. But but even you know the the concept of or the of a black hand letter, they're not really sure where that originated. I mean, the tendency is to pin it on the Italians because mm-hmm. they certainly popularized it, but the Italians tended to blame it on the Spanish. <laughs> and the fact is that nobody uh, had a, a you know a copyright on the on the technique. It was being used fairly widely among a number of different nationalities. So there was a lot of this going on back in Europe. Yes, there was some, uh, but it it kind of was arising everywhere at once, but it definitely got a foothold in the United States. And I think that was partially because, you know, we were the Wild West and we were the one where all the immigrants were coming in. You know, this was the land of opportunity and a lot of those people seeking the opportunities are criminals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so they, they used a technique that they brought with them from the, you know, the, the old country. And uh, they, they had a whole bunch of people who, uh, you know, were a good audience for that because they were in the same situation they were. They were new to the country. They didn't know a lot of people. They didn't understand how the government worked. They didn't trust the police because they didn't have good experiences with government or police where they came from. Mm-hmm. So it made them very vulnerable. They were isolated. And uh, the, the people who started using the black hand letters just targeted them. They were targeting you know, their, their fellow countrymen. Now, after reading your book, in many ways, it seems like you wrote a book that speaks to the difficulties of immigrants arriving in the United States today. Um, did you find a lot of parallels between the situation 100 years ago and what's going on today? Right. And, and you know, we we try to draw parallels between the situation that existed back then, and we're talking you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, with the situation we have now with uh, immigrants who, because they don't know the language, because they don't know the culture, because they've had bad experiences in their home countries, that make them distrustful of others. And because they tend to be isolated and you know, ghettoized to an extent, uh, they're very vulnerable. Uh, you know, We see a lot of the human trafficking that takes place, mm-hmm. takes place within the immigrant groups. Uh, you know, One immigrant is exploiting the other one. And what's very critical to resolving these problems is to first acknowledge that there's a problem. And with the black hand activity that was going on, because so much of it was taking place in the you know the Italian communities and settlements in the United States, the Italian consul and other Italian groups that were trying to uplift you know the 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 image of the Italians were quick to deny that this was taking place because they knew if they admitted that these Italian immigrants were engaging in this behavior, then that would make 
all Italians a target for those people who don't approve of immigration. So they just wanted to, you know, deny it was happening, pretend it wasn't there, try to blame it on somebody else instead of actually acknowledging the problem and then working to uh, deal with it. Because it was only when they did that that they were made any headway. And so they didn't really reach out for help at all. They they tried to keep this within their own ethnic community. Absolutely. They, well, they had no incentive to. You know, you don't um, emigrate to a country in the way they did because everything was going great for you back home. You know, so you started out with people who came from pretty rough lives, pretty poor lives. There was a real uh, lack of employment in the south of Italy, not a lot to do. That's why they came to America in the first place, because things weren't going well. And what they came from was an environment where you didn't trust the government. The government wasn't there to help you. The police weren't there to help you. I mean, the concept would have been entirely foreign. So already these are people who wouldn't have reached out to the police, even if they spoke the same language, even if they understood them in any way. You know, and add to that the fact that uh, police forces in this country were largely Irish. I mean, just, just 90, upwards of 90% Irish police force. So again, not speaking the same language as the Italians, not understanding their culture, um, not even if they genuinely wanted to help them, really not equipped to help them in any way. So uh, it, it wouldn't have been a an obvious move to reach out for help, and it wouldn't really have been a logical move if they thought it through. They, they had no reason to expect that the police, yeah. that the authorities would or could, could help them. Yeah, where they came from, you know, the only people they really trusted were their families. And... <laughs> Not all of them were trustworthy, <laughs> but that you know that was the group that you trusted. If you had a complaint, that's who you went to. You know, that's how you had you know the kind of the mafia develop because you had this structure that was pretty much family related, where you know you reported upwards to the the don, you know, and he took care of things for you as long as you were obedient, and uh, that's what they knew. <laughs> What they didn't know is being able to go to somebody outside of your family and complain about a situation and have it actually addressed. So you mentioned the term mafia. I think when a lot of people think about organized crime in this period, the word mafia immediately comes to mind. Now, mafia is something completely different than what we've been talking about with the black hand, correct? <laughs> It's interesting, mafia is another term that nobody knows where it came from. Uh, the first reference uh, to it was in the title of a play in the middle of the 19th century, and it took place in a prison. But it, the term came to be used to describe this type of criminal organization that existed. And as I said, it was in Italy, and it was pretty much you know, a, a, a reporting structure. It was kind of uh, vertically integrated. <laughs> Because uh, it had a, a top, you know, figure at the top, and then you had uh, this pyramid of people until you got down to the, the real the torpedoes at the lowest level. They could use a black hand technique in what they did, and probably did. But again, the black hand was a technique, and it wasn't an organization. And our book is entitled Ohio's Black Hand Syndicate because you had a group that basically was organized around using the black hand technique. But they, in fact, called themselves the Society of the Banana and Faithful Friends. All right, I've been waiting to ask you this since we started talking. What on earth do bananas have to do with the rise of organized crime? 
Well, <laughs> um, in Ohio, the Society of the Banana were, in fact, the fruit vendors. Um, if you think about the distribution of fruit, you know, it has to come from where it was originally grown, which may or may not be in this country. It has to pass through a couple of middlemen to get to the final salesperson to sell to the uh, consumer. That's a pretty solid organization right there yeah. already. And it's it's interesting, you know, the, the, the real development of the fruit and produce, you know, vending operations in the United States came from a lot of these people. You know, the Italians and Greeks in the Mediterranean area that were used to having fruits and vegetables of this type in their daily diet. And so there was a demand for it, and they are the ones that turned around and started filling it. And because many Italians who came here were did not have marketable skills, they were coming from southern uh, Italy where they were primarily farmers. <laughs> None of them were landowners. There were very few landowners out of that group. They were just farmers, very low skilled. When they got over here, one of the few opportunities they had was to get a cart and sell fruit. They'd buy it at a produce vendor and they'd take it out, peddle it on the street. So you had the, the whole, you know, the image of the, uh, the Italian banana vendor. Well, that was everywhere. Now, any, you know, city of any size likely had those on the streets, all these, you know, vendors uh, out there selling bananas. And that was kind of the uh, beginning level in rising up through uh, the whole produce industry. And these guys that tended to get involved in it, that's what they were doing is they were selling fruit. And they added on to that, sending out black hand letters. Uh, and I'd say that one's really interesting because for a lot of immigrants still, the street food cart is a way to get started, a way to get a foothold in this country. You Definitely. Know? It's a you very low investment. Go to any major city, you know, it's it's not going to be the white hair, the white skinned blonde boy named Corey selling you a hot dog. <laughs> it's, it's most likely going to be a first or second generation immigrant who that is their business and that's what they were able to get. And hopefully it'll lead to a life of prosperity in this country. Can you talk about what kinds of criminal activities these people that Immigrants who come to the United States and initially get started in the fruit vending business, but increasingly find themselves getting pulled into crime. What kinds of things are they doing? Who do they target? Um, and what's the experience of somebody who's found themselves the target of the black hand? Well, a lot of it was psychological because they had these terrible threats, and that would be such things as uh, you know, kidnapping somebody, hurting somebody. Uh, blowing up your house. Those are all things that they threatened to engage in and to some extent did. The group we're talking about, the Society of the Banana, they were suspected of committing 30 murders. But when they went to trial, they weren't tried for any of those murders. But you name it, it was a way of threatening somebody, they did it. So the people using these black hand techniques are really just menacing their neighbors in the community, threatening some violence in the future. And I assume the purpose is some kind of ransom? Yeah, yeah it was it, entirely extortion. Yeah, it was just tribute. You know, you you pay me, you know, $1,500 or I'm going to kidnap your daughter. And so knowing what's in the newspaper about the society of, you know, the, of the Black Hand Society, you imagine that there's people all over the place who are waiting to carry out this order. So if you possibly can, 
you scrape together the money. And if, in fact, you do pay them, then they're going to turn around and send you another letter because you've already shown that you're a soft touch. So it doesn't stop when you pay the, you know, your tribute. It just means you're going to get another letter in the mail. Um, not so much in these cases, but there are cases of uh, black hand activity, again, not this group, where people would use threatening letters to try to get someone to leave a community. Know what you're doing, we don't approve of it, get out or we'll destroy you. But that wasn't so much the case with this group. This group was really about the money. But, but it did, what I was struck by is the reach of the group. Because you had instances in Columbus where a person's house was bombed took his family, went back to Italy to try to escape him, and immediately was contacted by the Black Hand, uh, Black Hand emissary over there, and he continued to receive threats. So he ends up coming back to Columbus because he couldn't escape him. He thought he could outrun him, but he couldn't. And they, you know, even, we're talking about, you know, in this case, about 1908, 1909, they travel fairly freely, but, you know, between Ohio and Sicily. <laughs> and it's, it's just incredible to me because of the amount of time involved. And they roam throughout, you know, the eastern half of the United States. And in mailing out these letters, they were writing some of them in Pittsburgh and sending them as far as uh, Oregon to be mailed back to the Midwest in order to try to cover up the trail. So these outfits are cells talk to each other in different cities. These organizations had some kind of connection network. And this one does. It said this was the first one established that there was an organization. Most of them were just local. I mean, you'd have a, a community that would have an active group doing black hand blackmailing, but they didn't seem to extend beyond that. In the case of Society of the Banana, they were based in Marion, Ohio, with branches in Columbus, Cincinnati, um, Pittsburgh, possibly Chicago, uh, other towns, Bell Fountain, Denison. I mean, they had people in all those places that were contributing to this end product of writing, creating, and mailing out these letters and collecting money. And the big break came in this case from an investigation taking place in, in uh, Pennsylvania captured some black handers over there, forced them to tell what they knew. And what they knew was that there was going to be a big meeting in Marion, Ohio, to discuss the division of the spoils because there was some unhappiness about the way it was being done. Over the course of your research for this book, did you find any data on how many people were actually paying the ransom demands? Or were most people just ignoring these black hand letters? It's really hard to tell. It's really, really hard to give those exact numbers. Um, you know, you're right. Sometimes they don't pay and nothing happens. Um, sometimes they do pay and they just keep paying. And it actually, that might be what happens most often is you get a letter. If you're able to pay it, you pay it and you continue to do that. But, the, you know, there's enough people that were, you know, <laughs> injured mm -hmm. or killed to maintain the threat. And they estimate, you know, during this period of time, in New York City alone, 90% you know, of the Italians were receiving these letters. And most people who received them and did pay didn't say anything about it. That, that's until you had this case, the Society of Banana, where they went on trial 
And then there were people coming out of the woodwork who were kind of, you know, ready to testify against them because they had the example of a family in Columbus who stood up to the black hand and, and they were the first ones to, to do so and go to the postal you know, authorities and start the ball rolling for the investigation. Yeah, that's our hero of the book, John Amicon and his family. And he was threatened. He said, I'm not going to respond to these threats. And they bombed his house. Well, they put the bomb. They tried it to. Off. It didn't go off. Two bombs. But... They attempted to bomb his house. So now he was pretty wealthy in the community. So for him, there was definitely follow through. They weren't just threatening. They were willing to go ahead and keep trying to get the money. But... Well, the fact that he was so successful in the produce probably means that he was fairly tough. He could stand up to a little pressure. And when they put a bomb on his porch on, on the January 1st, 1909, his wife found it. It didn't phase him. He, he took the bomb and took it downtown to a, to a sporting goods uh, a company, and they put it in their vault. And then he went to the postal inspectors and told them that he'd been receiving these black hand letters. And his words were, you know, they've tackled the wrong fish. I won't pay him a dime. I'd die first. So he stood up to him, and he's the one who was, you know, the, the lead prosecution witness. And this is kind of amazing in itself because just a few days before they went on trial, his uh, brother-in-law died under mysterious circumstances. It was made to look like an accident, but it was likely he was murdered. Now, this took place well before the creation of the FBI, right? Yeah, at that time, there were two main investigative bodies in the United States that had the authority to go anywhere. One was the Secret Service, and the other one was the United States Postal Inspectors. <laughs> Nobody else existed, but they had, especially the Postal Inspectors, kind of unlimited resources for the time. You know, most police departments, if they had detectives at all, you know, they were the people that took statements when people confessed. <laughs> or maybe help to, you know, uh, beat a confession out of somebody. There wasn't a lot being done, you know, like Sherlock Holmes type investigations. And that's why you had private companies like the, the Pinkertons and Burns Detective Agency arise to fill that gap. But the postal inspectors, they did, and they had the time, and they had the manpower. And they, you know, a, a guy named uh, Oldfield was the lead inspector. He put together a little team, and working from information they received from the Pinkertons in Pittsburgh regarding this meeting that was going to take place in Marion, he sent his men there. They staked out where it was going to take place, which was at Salvador Lima's fruit stand, and they kept track of every stranger who arrived in town and arrived at the train depot and then went directly to Lima's fruit stand, fruit store, and they kept track of those, you know, and some 20 men came there during the day, and they also noticed that later in the day, they ordered cots in because their meeting was running late, and they were going to stay the night, but they had also rented the storefront next to Lima's place, drilled a hole in the wall, so they were eavesdropping on what was going on, so they collected data, and they came up with a, a very interesting plan for marking postage stamps, which were only sold to Lima and his employees. And they were able to use these to track mail going all over the country because it has unique markings on it. And then when they conducted their raid on Lima's store, they found out that he kept 
pretty detailed records of their activities. They had lists of who received uh, letters, whether they paid any tribute, you know, whether they sent them more letters. They also had the constitution for and the bylaws for the Society of the Banana. And they also had a, a list of all the members. You had a pretty good case on paper to you know, show what was going on. And so all they needed then was the testimony of the actual victims, and they were able to get that. Wow, that's really fascinating. Was this strategy that they used to bring down this group a, a new way of thinking for law enforcement at that time? Well, any kind of investigation was it was innovative at the time. Uh, as as my father said, you know, detectives weren't doing detective work the way we think of detective work. Really, the only way police were dealing with crime was the crime that they could easily deal with. They weren't investigating some stuff. So if your stuff was stolen and you couldn't very explicitly say it's clearly that guy right there who's wearing my shirt there wasn't much they could do about it. It just wasn't, detective work was a fairly new thing, so everything they were doing was innovative. Um, And the fact that this is the first time that anybody was prosecuted for organized crime tells you that they were really kind of making it up as they were going, just doing what seemed best, best practices. One of the really cool things that they started to do at this time was to actually have Italian-Americans involved in the detective work, involved in the investigation process. Um, as I said earlier, the police forces were 90-some percent Irish, at least. Uh, so to actually have what they called an Italian squad of Italian-Americans who knew the culture. Actually had experience. Right, could speak to the people and could ev- could be trusted by them. They could be seen as, okay, that's not somebody I don't know showing up in a uniform to talk to me, you know, that's, that's uh, Angela's boy. I know him. He grew up in the community. His family lives around the block. Sure, I'll talk to him. Yeah, that was, uh, the Ita- rise of the Italian squads was almost occurred simultaneously in New York City, in Pennsylvania with the Pinkertons, and in Columbus. And we had three members on the police force here who were Italian, and they formed the Italian squad. And they were very good because they understood, you know, the, the various dialects. Because Italy was a brand new country, you know, in, in the 1870s. And there was no unified language. There were just all these regional dialects. And you know, so you had to know people who were able to uh, understand those were you know, very important to uh, uncovering uh, the what was going on here to be able to talk to the witnesses and to read the letters that were being written. We had one here in Columbus, Victor Churches, who played a key role in this whole investigation. And these guys, because they were Italian, they were being threatened too by gangs, you know, and they were determined to stand up for, you know, their Italian heritage and make sure that, you know, these mafia-type organizations, and that mafia and Black Ham's kind of used interchangeably to ensure that they didn't gain a foothold here. But it was critical for them to become involved because they could understand what was going on in the communities. Now, did this investigation in Ohio set any kind of precedent for the way these types of cases were prosecuted in the future? Well, it was. It's a very important investigation in the history of the Postal Authority, for sure. It made Frank Oldfield's career, the lead investigator. And so, yeah, it was kind of a model for 
uh, an early investigation of this type. But, you know, as, as we emphasize, it, it was very important to have the Italians involved as well and to have Italian victims stand up to these criminals and testify in court as to what happened. And this all came from developing trust. And, and one of the key figures early on was a police lieutenant in New York named Lieutenant Petrosino. And he was a, a, you know, the foremost expert in Italian crime in the United States up until he got assassinated in 1909. But he said the key was education. He said it was just important to work with the, the immigrants and get them to understand how the government worked, how the police worked. So start building these bridges between them. Did this change in approach to policing result in a reduction of black hand crime? Yeah, it just changed. Um, it, it's interesting. Oldfield insisted that th they basically clamped down on black hand crime. It wasn't occurring anymore. But even as he was saying that, they personally were getting black hand letters. Mm -hmm. You know, more and more were being sent out because this kind of attention to something like this inspires others to do the same thing. Uh, black hand crime continued. You know, the, the trial took place in 1910. Black hand type crime basically died out in the early 20s. So, you know, it went on for another 10 or 12 years. And by that time, you know, it was replaced more by the organized crime that we think of, you know, the Al Capone, Purple Gang type stuff that we're dealing in. We started Prohibition by that point. Prohibition. Prohibition was probably yeah. the biggest, you know, why mess around writing threatening letters when you can you know, deal in bootleg liquor, you know? <laughs> That's where the real money is. So, you know, it, it, it died out. It wasn't, it didn't get the attention anymore. Newspapers weren't interested anymore. And so when that happened, it kind of died out. Have you learned anything new about this topic since your book was released? Well, there's one point that we are making now, because since we wrote the book, we've met families from both sides of this issue. Ah, mm -hmm. oh, no way. You've been approached by their descendants? Yes. Yes. Yeah, we first met a number of the Amicon descendants. Which, again, he's our hero, so yeah. that was fine. <laughs> but, but we've also met uh, a woman from the Vicario Chira line, which comes out of Bell Fountain and also ties into to Marion. And the point she makes, and she's provided us with some information that's on a, it. That's a considerably less heroic family in this book. Yeah, <laughs> the, but the point she makes is they, after they went to prison, they came back to the community and kind of made amends and started their own little businesses. And she's descended from that line. Her uh, father was the son of uh, Coligero Vicario, who was one of the key people in this. Her father became the, you know, the longest serving mayor of Bell Fountain. And he started like six different businesses, restaurants and uh, telecommunications businesses and things. And when he died, his obituary, which was huge, had just line after line after line of all these charitable uh, organizations he was involved in. And even, you know, the, the ones that were uh, key players in this thing, like Coligero, he came back, started a shoe store, shoe store got into a, involved into a shoe store and a hat shop and then a shoe center. So they, and he started a restaurant as well. So they did turn their lives around after this, you know, 
and they didn't, you know, and they were embraced by the community, you know, which I think is an important thing too, because mm-hmm. we have an awful lot of people go to prison nowadays. And since I worked in prisons, I know most of them get out. And it's very important to, you know, help them to to reintegrate back in society mm-hmm. and have a chance to 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 do what's right. So there is more to the story for some of these characters. They were able to be reformed and become reintegrated into society and lead successful lives after all of this? Well, it it isn't even just the reform. It's that they were able to, when they got out, start businesses. You know, Uh, they were able to do what they needed to continue to live their lives. They weren't constantly branded with, oh, they were in prison. Yeah. They, They were, you know... Like I said, they opened restaurants and people went to them. <laughs> and I think one of the, the things that that this woman points out to us is that they came from the same background. They didn't have any more opportunities than the people they were victimizing. And they no. were in a situation where they had families to take care of as well. They they used what the tools they had available to them to try to make a living. The- and when something when they had opportunity to do something else, then they changed to something else. No, she she made a very clear point that they weren't rich. That a lot of the people <laughs> that were doing this, they weren't getting rich off of it. They weren't they weren't Al Capone living in their Chicago mansions. They were still scraping by. Uh, you know, this is they <laughs> didn't speak English so well. They probably didn't read or write it. They may or not have been able to read or write in Italian, depending on where they came from. Opportunities were very, very limited. This was a thing they could do. Was it illegal? Yes. Were there victims? Yes. But they had to do something to survive because there just was not yeah. a lot of opportunity. Yeah, we didn't have much of a welfare net then to, to, to catch these people. They were There was an awful lot of um, discrimination against them as immigrants, as Italians. I always like to remind people that at this time in America, Italians were not considered white. Um, and so they had all the disadvantages that come with not being considered white in our culture. Well, and they're Catholic also. Uh, yeah. That's a prejudice that, you know, lasted up for a very, very long time. Think about, you know, what a shock it was for Kennedy to be a Catholic president. That's, that is a prejudice that stuck around for a long time. Yeah. Are there any modern takeaways for someone reading your book in 2018? Oh, yeah. I mean, like you said early on, this is a, the immigrants can be very vulnerable and they can be very vulnerable to other immigrants even who are also in the same boat trying to fight. Um, so how are we helping that? How, how are we as a culture welcoming? How are we uh, trying to protect them? How are we offering assistance to them when they need us? David, Elise, this has been a great discussion. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I know there's a lot more in your book, a lot more detail that we weren't able to get to today. Where can someone go if they want to pick up your book or learn more about the rest of your work? Well, the book can be found <laughs> about anywhere books are sold. Uh, you, you know, can check them you know, on Amazon.com is a common place people look, but BarnesandNoble.com has it. All those online booksellers have it. Uh, specifically, though, um, Go Independent Bookstores, the yes. book loft in Columbus, Ohio, German Village has it. So if you're in Ohio, stop at the book loft because they're awesome. And yes. Although we are at all the retailers, we're also at those independent bookstores. Yeah, they're more likely to be autographed there, too. <laughs> also, uh, check out our website, which is explodingstove.com. Uh, 
we've got all of our books there. Lots of other information too. We've got links to like a, a 1906 movie called The Black Hand. So you can watch that as a silent film, which was kind of a how to do it. <laughs> if you were a, a budding a criminal and you wanted to learn how to do black hand <laughs> letters, uh, this little <laughs> movie, 15 minutes short, will tell you how to do it. But you know, we've got you know, newspaper articles and, and all kinds of other things. And We try to put stuff that we learned since the writing of the book up on the website. Yes. But it also tells you what other books we have coming up. David and Elise, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Hey, anytime. We... Thank you. I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy day to listen to another episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and consider giving it a five-star review, which will really help get the word out about the show. If you're interested in learning more about Ohio's Black Hand Syndicate, head over to can'tmakethisuppodcast.com check out today's show notes also if you want to stay up to date with upcoming shows follow the podcast on facebook and twitter and look for our next episode on september 28th